Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Welcome to On the Tape, folks. We have had so much going on this past week. We got a lot going on next week. We had bank earnings. We're going to talk about that. You know what? Stocks are at all-time highs. You know why, Dan Nathan? You know why stocks are higher? Dan, tell me why stocks are higher. Because the market's open, guy. Because the market's open. That's it. Market open, stock goes higher. It's that simple. Hot inflation numbers, in my opinion. We have our friend Jerome Powell testifying on Capitol Hill. It is my sincere hope that one day he testifies someplace else. But that's a horse of a different color. Later, we're going to be going off the tape with the great Peter Bookvar. But you know what? Dan coined it. On fire. F MAGA reports at the end of the month. Dan, do you have some thoughts on this complex that you so aptly named two years or so ago? The F MAGA complex, the Facebook, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon, they're making up $8.5 trillion in market cap. I think it's truly astounding. This week, Apple made its first new all-time high since January, which was just a whisper above its September 2020 high. But here's the thing. That stock has gained a half a trillion dollars in market cap since mid-May on its just epic rise there. We know Amazon did the same thing last week, and we've been talking about this a lot. If you look under the hood, the breadth in the market has been very poor of late. And I'll just kind of highlight a couple things that the move into these super caps, if you will, I think is very defensive. And what have we seen? We've seen the kind of meme stocks blow up. We've seen crypto unable to get a bid. It really feels like Bitcoin in particular feels like it's ready to fall. We've seen high growth stocks, many of which, you know, had these massive rallies, 30, 40, 50% off their May lows. They started to turn a little bit. And then the last one, guys, interest rates. I think when we were taping this last week, you know, a lot of people were fairly certain that that technical move, if you will, down to the 200-day moving average in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was it. It did what it needed to do. That was the pain trade lower. Well, let me tell you something. It really feels like it wants to break that. So when you say stocks at all-time highs, there's a massive disconnect, in my opinion, with large cap stocks. And we know that small caps in the form of the Russell 2000 have been going sideways and really underperforming their large cap brethren. So to me, not a great setup here for stocks as we head into the bulk of earnings next week. Danny, you and I are birds of a feathered flock, which I just like saying because it's just a fun thing to say. And we're both predisposed to be the sort of the half empty guys and always looking for the next shoe to drop. But even you, would submit that the move in some of these F mega complex has been astounding over the last couple of weeks. And I'm just curious, what do you think the setup in earnings is? I have a view. I'm curious to hear yours. We've already seen a little bit of what a setup in earnings looks like with the banks and financials expected to be great. They were great. I think the backdrop of rates going lower is hurting these companies and people are looking at, can it get any better for the economy? If you're a proponent of this is transitory in terms of growth in the economy and the CPI and PPI and production and all that, then you say to yourself, well, then the Wall Street banks must be over earning right now, too. And that's going to happen. So that's one sector that always reports early. But to Dan's point, and Dan made a great point a couple of weeks ago, that if the 10-year gets to 120, this is where we're all in agreement. If the 10 years at 120, something has happened. Whatever that is, a slowdown, a readjustment in growth, whatever that might be. 
but the market's going to be much lower. We're at a tipping point right now. The market's trying to make a choice and decide, can it validate where S&P earnings are trading right now? And the last thing I'll say before I turn it back to you, Guy, is that I know the market breath is, is bad, but I saw a stat the other day. I don't want to quote an exact number. One of these days, the S&P 500 was up. I think only 60 or 70 stocks were up on day out of the 500. It's like 430 or 440 stocks were down. I think that might be right. I don't know. I read that and I didn't even have to look at the rest of the market or get a sense for how I feel about things by reading something like that. Don't at me, the kids would say, and I'm not going to at you, but I saw similar news came out and similar headlines. And it's astounding to me because, listen, the market ends all conversations. So here's, I'm just going to throw this out to the two of you, a, a jump ball, as it were. And I mentioned jump ball because as we sit here, Dan, Nathan, the NBA championship is tied at two. And I said that would happen the other day on, at, I believe it was the macro setup, I forget, after all this time. But I said it's going to wind up being the best of three series that the Sons of Phoenix will wind up winning. But my jump ball is this. Do the rates going lower mean by definition that the Fed has this right? The Fed has it right for now. They've been telling us that they're going to let inflation run hot, right? They've also been signaling the fact that they have no intention to taper anytime soon or come off zero interest rates. So for the time being, the Fed has it right. I know that they're trying to solve to stable prices and full unemployment, and they keep focusing on that full unemployment. But I think some of the disconnects and distortions of the pandemic are going to make that number harder to achieve. We've already seen some fits and starts, I guess, with the jobs data over the last three months. The market did not seem to care that the June number was better than expected after two disappointing numbers. What did rates do? They just went lower. So it feels like rates want to go lower. And I get it. Okay, If the Fed signals at Jackson Hole at the end of August, August that they may start to taper in Q4, rates may run, but they may have to overshoot to the downside first. And downside overshot means like 1%, I think. Hey, Guy, you know how you always love to quote movies? I got one for you. You got to tell me where this comes from. You ready? Go ahead. Don't be some obscure bullshit movie, okay? Please. If it's not in your top 10 movie, I'll never speak to you again. I can live with you not seeing the big short, believe me. But if you don't, okay. okay. No, but I'm going this weekend to get it. Go ahead, please. Here's the quote. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. You better know that because I did his voice. You have to know the actor. You have to know the movie. That's got to be Shawshank Redemption. That's got to be Morgan Freeman talking to Tim Robbins, one of the great movies of all time. A Stephen King book, by the way. Back to you, Danny Moses. Well, Powell this week said, quote, "Uh, inflation is a little bit more persistent than we had expected and hoped. So that's a great strategy. Don't you think, Guy, if you're at the Fed, just to hope inflation comes out? Hope is not an investment strategy, Danny Moses, as you know, as, as I heard you say in the movie, The Big Short, which I haven't watched yet. Yeah, so Powell was saying things are transitory, except when they started out saying transitory, it was one, two, three months. We're now entering past that phase, and he's willing to give it six to nine months. But they're using the pre-pandemic employment as kind of the baseline for the, the other criteria that needs to be met. And I just wonder how, if you allow that type of employment to come back, whether those jobs exist or not, how is inflation not going to run rampant if you try to achieve that full employment? Because wages are going up. I agree with you, by the way. Wages are going up. You're seeing it across the board. But the flip side of that coin is something that Dan Nathan pointed out to me earlier this week was that comment out of Raytheon, the fact that, you know what, we're just going to automate. We're just going to put machines in. And quite frankly, that's what's going on. So the flip side of wage growth is automation. And as I've said a thousand times, Technology is the most deflationary force in the history of mankind, and we're living through probably peak technology in terms of 
the last 200 years here in the United States. So that's why I don't think the Fed can win this game because they're fighting inflation on one hand, which are getting in spades and things they don't measure. But on the flip side, we're in this deflationary spiral based on the technology that they're trying to combat. It makes zero sense to me. I guess it makes zero sense to just think about it through the lens of this last year, year and a half with the pandemic. Because, guy, pre-pandemic, I mean, the Fed was fighting to get prices going higher. They were worried that inflation was too low. And and when you talk about wage inflation, yeah, it's here. Look at the disconnects. Look at the the disconnects in in supply chains and, and everything like that. So we're seeing some reshoring. That's obviously doing a bit of that. But at the end of the day, to your point about automation, I think that there's going to be a smaller piece of the pie where wages go up. This is post-pandemic, and you're going to see just the acceleration of automation. So I just don't think wage growth is going to be a particular problem. I know that pre-pandemic, we were worried about it was just too slow. So to me, we've already seen a lot of input costs in the commodity space come down a bit after they just rocketed up last year into this year, and they've reversed. And we've talked about it. We don't even need to talk about it. Copper and lumber and some of this stuff. So I suspect you're going to see that in crude oil as we get by the peak driving season. How many wage increases from various large companies is it going to take? Now, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying for people to believe we haven't heard about wage increases for 10, 12, 14 years on a sustainable basis. It's happening everywhere. And now it's happening in higher paid jobs. I mean, if BlackRock's going to raise everybody's salaries. I mean, we're talking about a whole different group than the Amazon. Cloud. I know, but, I'm just Danny, saying, but Danny, yeah. these are companies that have benefited from massive tax cuts over the last few years. They're realizing greater efficiencies because of technology. They've been buying back their stock. Their margins are at all-time highs. I'm not, I'm, I'm not arguing about what their earnings are going to be. and that they, I'm arguing that that's, for, you know, wherever you work is one thing. Where you spend your money and how you live your life is a whole complete different. I'm, I'm just saying that when you have wage inflation, people can spend more money on things. That's what leads to inflation. And expected inflation leads to inflation. Should I be prepared for my 65-inch Sony flat screen TV to go from $400 to $450 because it was $4,000 10 years ago and now it's 400 I mean, you get my point. Listen, we could sit here and argue it until we're blue in the face. I just think that the wage inflation that we're seeing is going to be a smaller piece of the pie for two main reasons. A, technology, which Guy just said, the productivity gains, and then obviously automation. So I, you know, I don't know how you trade the market on this conversation because to me, the Fed has it right right now. They've been telling you before the transitory tantrum, they've been telling you they're going to let inflation run hot. And people have been screaming about runaway inflation because Fed policy since 2008, and it's never happened except for now. Okay, so now is is basically in the other side of the worst economic and health crisis that the world has seen and massive disconnect. So a forced recession here. And we've had this V reversal in both the economy and the markets. And I guess the way I'm thinking about it is, guys, I just don't think that we're just going to be talking about this too much in six months, 12 months, that sort of thing, if we really are at the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, it's an, I hope we're not talking about it because then you'll be correct. My sense is we will be talking about it because, listen, you know, be careful what you wish for there, Jerome Powell and all you geniuses there at central banks, because you just might get it and you might get it in spades. And they continue to throw money at this. The difference now, as opposed to 10, 12 years ago, is the Fed's balance sheet is now north of $8 trillion and money continues to get thrown into the system, searching for exactly that. At some point, by blind luck, they're just going to find it. We'll see. But it's another topic for another day. We will continue to debate this, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm confident that Peter Bookvar has some thoughts on this as well. He's going to come on in a few minutes as well. The other thing we have to talk about quickly is earnings this past week that we saw. Bank earnings 
I think on the margins, one would say that the bank earnings were really strong. I think one would also say that the price action was sort of meh, as they say. Dan, Nathan, thoughts? Yeah, I think that banks had outperformed a great deal since the vaccines in November, the broad market. I don't know exactly what, but you could just kind of look at the percentage gains of the the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and and look at the XLF or the KDBW or whatever you want to look at. And I think that expectations were really high. I think that earlier in the year when rates were going higher, I think banks liked it for net interest margins. They didn't look particularly great in this past quarter. And I think a lot of the bank CEOs were talking about how they're optimistic about consumer loan growth, but they're not really seeing it yet. So to me, I just think it was probably as good as it gets in Q2. And I don't think the Q3 guidance or or at least the commentary about it were that great. And we also know they're going to be facing difficult comparisons. I'm not particularly excited about what the banks had to say. And I think the price action made some sense. Danny, before I hear your thoughts on the banks, I want to ask you a question. Your favorite Jack Nicholson film, because Dan mentioned one, that's not my favorite. I have a couple. What is yours, please? It's got to be Shining. It just has to be. Yeah, The Shining just freaks me out. I mean, he was so good in that. I think The Shining is clearly up there. I think Chinatown is a great one, Dan Nathan. See, this is when Dan starts to get mad. No, at me I'm I don't, I don't get a say here. I, I think that stuff. one of his most underrated roles was uh, playing the Joker in the original Batman opposite didn't, Mike. Didn't see it. Didn't, I'm not a Batman, Rob. Those movies bore the you-know-what out of me. I'll see those movies when I see Star Wars, when I see E.T., and when I see the big short. Oh, Danny man. Moses. Oh, man. <laughs> I will say, Danny, when I started arguing with Dan about inflation and wage, he looked like he was turning into Nicholson after spending six weeks in a room all alone up there. So well, can, I, I all right, can, can I just put one bow on, on that little inflation? I'm, I'm just sick of it. Sick of it. I'm just, you know, you know what? You're using, hold on. I love you. You know that. You're doing what everyone else is doing. You're, you're letting the report card be the stock market and the bond market. And you're saying that they've gotten it right. I'm saying is that someone cheated on the freaking report card, is cheating on their tests, and, and that someone someone went into the system and changed an F to an A. That's all. That's all. Put a bow on it. And I don't disagree with that either, except for the fact that this is it. Dude, modern monetary theory, it won. It's ruling the day. And and to your guys' point, is like, yes, we're seeing this gap in income inequality, and it keeps increasing every single time that we need to socialize losses, right? We're seeing gains privatized, and we're seeing anything that is not bolted down as far as hard assets and things that, I guess, wealthy people and companies can buy, they're buying it. The one thing I will say, is, uh, Danny, I don't know if you caught this in JP Morgan's report, that in their wealth management division, okay, they're high net worth individuals, loan growth was up 21%. In the consumer division, it was down 3%. So it's making your point in a way. But I guess my point is is like, if just calling that they're going to create some sort of behemoth asset bubble that ultimately is going to pop, you know, who knows when that's going to happen? I just don't know. Dan, Dan, let me just say the biggest beneficiary of all this stimulus has been the people that need it the most, right? The people that spend it and live month to month. They don't need a loan right now because they're able to use these checks to go buy things. To your point, the bigger purchase items and things aren't solved with wealthy people getting those type of loans. So you're seeing it. And just to put a bow on the banks for a second, I talked about this a minute ago. Certain of the banks like Bank of America, Wells Fargo are much more exposed to that type of consumer. The Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanley's of the world and the JP Morgan's, although they have a large consumer division, 
aren't as exposed. And you saw what the earnings were from just investment banking. And the reason, like I said before, the stocks aren't trading well is one, you already knew they got approved from the Fed to do their buybacks and the dividend increases. So those weren't unexpected. Rates have gone down in the face of people holding out for what was going to be great earnings and they knew it. I mean, Goldman, I think in the quarter, let me make sure I got this right, earned, it was the second largest quarter ever only superseded by the first quarter. So I think people are saying to themselves, how much more room is there? I think it was like six-something billion and five-something billion in back-to-back quarters or whatever the numbers were. So it's like, okay, great. Where do we go from here? But they're great companies. These things are very safe. There is no crisis for these companies at all. And if they miss on the margin on, on a consumer loan number, so be it. But I, you know, I think they're really going to trade in lockstep now with rates from here. You know, it's, it's interesting. And this is, I'm going to get, I'm not off topic along those same lines, just to show you how hard this is. It's interesting that this past Monday night on CNBC's Fast Money, Dominic Chu said, tomorrow, we're going to have an exclusive interview with the CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon. And in my mind, I'm saying to myself, well, the only reason he's doing this is because he knows earnings will be great. Dan Nathan said that on air. He actually said that on air. I bring this up because I'm convinced that the reason why he did that, he knew what earnings were going to be. And in his mind, he said, this is an opportunity for us to talk about Goldman Sachs for the first time ever trading $400 a share. And he was right about the earnings. The earnings were great. The price action was miserable. I mentioned that because even people like that get it wrong. He got it wrong in a different way than we do, but he got it wrong. The market has a way of humbling us all. And I'll just say this quickly, Dan Nathan. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, 1975, won all five major awards at the Academy Awards, First time it had happened since it happened one night. Subsequently happened with Silence of the Lambs. But I digress into our second topic, which is the meme stocks, which are melting frickin' down. I, I don't take great joy in saying that, but I take some joy in saying that, Dan. The week started off with Disney announcing their U.S. box office, but also their Disney Plus streaming numbers for The Black Widow. So this is part of the um, MCU, the Marvel Comic Universe. This was a hotly anticipated movie. They did $80 million in U.S. box office, and they did $60 million on streaming directly through Plus. And to me, that was just a shot across the bow, a massive flex for AMC, which I think has 60% market share of domestic box office. And listen, man, this was a company that was already losing money in 2019 before the pandemic. So when I look at this AMC and I'm looking at the chart right now, it broke out in mid-May above 10. I think the low on the year was close to $2. That was in January. And so here we are, the stock went as high as 72 bucks and we're at $35. It's gone from 50 to 35 just this week alone. I just think that fundamentals ultimately have to rule the day and how many of these meme stocks where the people buying the highs and puking them out at the lows is it going to take for them to kind of move on and figure out another hobby because trying to stick it through the man through your robin hood account by buying something that has no fundamental reason to be where it is is not a good way to grow your balances in your bank account i would say that when you own a 20 billion dollar company or what it was 25 now it's probably 15 i don't know where amc's market cap is and you're banking your hopes on the black widow sales of 70, 60 to $70 million in the theater 
to where the how the stock would trade, that tells you right then that you're really really in trouble. But I would tell you, technically speaking, if you remember this level or where it's about to approach was the level in late May where Mudrick Capital did kind of the quick offering, paid down some debt, then sold the stock. That was about a twenty nine to thirty two or thirty three dollar run. So I know I don't have to look at a chart to know that's a huge technical level for the company. And people want to hold it on, great. But I don't think this is diamond hand time anymore. I think this is run and find something else to own. What's fascinating to me is there's a faction of people out there that actually believe that as long as they hold the stock, as long as they own the stock, by definition, it has to go higher, which to me makes me want to scream. There are a lot of things that make me want to scream. That Yankee game last Sunday, when the Yankees were up 7-2 in the ninth, and they wind up losing that game to the freaking Astros, and Altuve hits a grand slam and takes his shirt off, that made me freaking scream. There are other things that make me scream as well. I won't get into it. The only thing that made that Sunday okay was the fact that the Mets, after going up five zip in the first inning, they lost two, made everything fine. I was, I was somewhat assuaged in my concerns when Italy, yes, Italy, beat Britain in that whatever match it was, European whatever match, having gone down one zip early in the game. See, I'm exercised now. But what really pisses me off is that people believe that if they own it, it has to go up. They think hold the line like there's some military fortress. It makes me freaking crazy. Which brings us to our next topic, which is crypto. That makes me a little crazy as well. And I know Danny has a lot of thoughts on it. But Jay Powell this week was waxing poetic, as was Jeff Gunlock on the Halftime Report, CNBC's highly rated show. Yeah, so Gunlock was on earlier today, and what did he say? He said the chart in Bitcoin looks very scary. We've been talking about this chart over the last couple of months. We know it's about 50-some percent off of its all-time highs made in mid-April. I think it happened to be the day that Coinbase went public through a direct listing IPO. A lot of technicians have an eye on this $30,000 level, which it kind of held back in May. It breached it briefly in June, but it's been in this bit of a downtrend. So all eyes are on it. But I'll just say this, you know, the investment community is spending a lot of time talking about this thing. This is less than a $600 billion market cap asset. And I think what's most interesting about what's going on with crypto is not actually the currencies, right? And I think I'll let Danny speak to what Jerome Powell said about Bitcoin. It really is the development around blockchain and the disintermediation or the disruption that may exist by a lot of these projects that are going after massive centralized incumbents. And to me, I continue to be very interested about that. And I don't really care that if Bitcoin goes from 30 to 20,000, which it feels like it's about to do, I think keep an eye on a lot of these other projects. That's what's most interesting to me right here. Yeah. I mean, I finally found someone who I'm sure knows less than I do about cryptocurrencies, and that's Jerome Powell. For him to make comment, you wouldn't need stable coins, you wouldn't need cryptocurrencies, if you had a digital U.S. currency, doesn't make any sense because that's going against the whole thesis of cryptocurrencies. I understand the point about stable coins, but cryptocurrencies in general have nothing to do with a digital U.S. currency. The whole idea of these things is that you don't want to rely on central banks' currencies themselves. So I think he's conflating and he kind of, he kind of showed that he doesn't truly understand the reason behind it. That being said, the more regulation is coming here and there. There is a digital coin disappearing every day. The latest token to go was this Bondly. Maybe at the height it wasn't that big, but you know what? $800 million is big. And yes, when it collapsed today, maybe it was down to $100 million, whatever, but it's just gone. And someone absconded with this digital token and it's gone. And no one can protect these people. They cannot go to the regulators and say, get me my money back. I mean, even Madoff got 20 to 30% of you were an investor Madoff back from the people that went out and, and got the money, even though that money wasn't fully real, but they were able to get something. There's nothing there for these people. So you're going to continue to see countries 
banning. I mean, look at this Binance, what's happened here, right? They're basically out of Italy now. In the UK, they froze. I'm surprised they didn't freeze Italians from getting money out of their accounts while they were in Britain after what happened to the World Cup guy. But they basically said you can no longer use Binance as a vehicle to take your money out. And so this stuff's going to keep happening. And these tokens are going by the wayside. And I'll just wrap it up with this, Dan. I think that these tokens, like we've said before, are meme stocks. They're a hope and a prayer. You're hoping someone buys it behind you. There's not really a fundamental reason to own them. Yes, some have applications, but you're lying to yourself if you think you have any safety. At least, at least if a a meme stock blows up on you and it was something the company did that made you lose money, there's something maybe there for you at the end, right? There's something maybe from a class action perspective, but there's nothing here with these. What shocks me is the fact, and I've been wrong about this one, but if you had told me that Bitcoin was going to go from 64,000-ish down to 31,000 and not bounce and then said, okay, where are the S&P 500 going to do on the back of that? I would have thought easily down 10%, if not more, as things start to unravel. Obviously, nothing could be further from the truth. The S&P 500 has actually made a new all-time high in the back of that. I think at some point, though, a meltdown in crypto, if that's where on the verge of, is going to find its way into the broader market. It's just my sense. We'll see what happens. But it's been right to be long and bullish the equity market. I mean, I can yell and scream all I want. And Jeff Gunlock can talk about ridiculous valuations on the halftime report. And he's right. But he will also point out that this is probably more sustainable than people think. And we'll see what happens. Dan, I know you have some thoughts in terms of the price action. Hasn't been great. Carterworth has been steadfast. He's done tremendous work. He still thinks we visit 20,000. I think you believe that as well. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that Unfortunately, and I think Powell's comment was just, you know, Bitcoin in particular has not demonstrated any usefulness of being an actual currency, right? So at, at this point, I think after four years of the investment community obsessing or hating on the Bitcoin in general, it really, the only pillar left of the bull case is that it's a store of value. It has better gold. And so, you know, you tell me guys, as inflation expectations are going higher, how, how's Bitcoin trading right now? Not well. So I'll also say this about its correlation to stocks. You know, the last two times the stock market sold off in 2018 when we had that 20% decline in Q4, Bitcoin lost half of its value. And then in 2020, last year, when the market went down 35%, I think Bitcoin lost more than half of its value here. Well, now it's down 50% from those recent highs. Stocks are at all-time highs. If stocks were to correct, let's say, 10% back towards, you know, let's say the S&P 500, somewhere near its 200-day moving average, which, as Guy would say, wouldn't be, you know, a difficult thing thing to accomplish, let's say, in the next month or two. Where's Bitcoin going? Is it rallying off of that? I don't think so, because I think to your point, Guy, that there's a lot of capital pools that have what they would deem to be some of their riskier sort of investments in whether it be high valuation tech that is likely to kind of get hit if the S&P goes down 10%, and also some things in the crypto space. And so maybe you're just kind of looking for some liquidity or looking to cap some gains, because Bitcoin even here is up on the year, and year over year year, it's up substantially. I mean, a year ago at this time, it was just crossing 10,000 for the first time in two or three years. So to me, I think it's not the tail wagging the dog here. I think stocks are going to dictate what crypto's next move might be. Another shitty movie, by the way. And for you on the tape fans, and there are many of you out there, you know that Dan Moses has been prescient, and there's a C in there somewhere in the spelling, with some of the calls that he's made. And they all seem to have come from a little segment that we call rip off the tape. We we use the when what happens Dan when they put letters together what do you call that thing instead acronym. of rip off the they tape call we call it acronym. It rot. Acronym. So we've created an acronym we call it rot 
Danny Moses gets a tad exercised. This is now Danny ripping off the tape. Danny Moses, ready for this? Untethered. <laughs> I want to make this short and sweet. I want to make one other comment, though, before I get into the rot here, is that if Coinbase was indeed the top, the near-term top for Bitcoin, then this Far Peak Acquisition Corp, where Tom Farley is going to be the president uh, or CEO of an exchange called Bullish, by the way, that might be the second top of what just has just occurred. And maybe the nail, not nail in the coffin, but another reason for Coinbase to trade down as more competition comes. That being said, I want to revisit Tether. And, you know, the FT has a great way of, of writing certain things. And if you remember on the Wirecard, people that were reading the FT years ago about Wirecard, FT wouldn't come out and say, hey, this is a fraud. Hey, this, they would just give you the facts. And they did an analysis of the current CFO of Tether, who was also the CFO of Bitfinex as well, Giancarlo Divasini. Okay. And that's great. His background, just read the article. He was a plastic surgeon. He had four or five other businesses that kind of went belly up and he found himself in this seat years ago. That, that's kind of a red, red flag for me. But here's what I'm most upset about. We have now seen very, very smart people, me not included in that group, come out and start to question the backing of Tether. And where's the $60 billion? What is it made of? Where are the Bitcoin experts, the smartest people that I know and respect coming out and saying, hey, guess what, guys? This tether's bad news. It's going to make us all look bad. The only bad thing I've heard is, hey, it may create a near-term dislocation in the price, but it's a buying opportunity. And let me tell you this. This reminds me exactly of the Lehman and Bear Stearns time period in 2007 on Wall Street, where everyone knew on Wall Street that who was holding the bag on all these bonds and CDOs and who was wearing it. And we all just didn't, you know, well, I was in a different position of wanting the party to end, but most people just wanted to willfully ignore it. Even the people that worked at these businesses that didn't want to acknowledge what was happening. And guess what happened? They let it go on too long and it ended up being the downfall. And so I'm making a statement right there to all these Bitcoin and pro cryptocurrency peoples, speak up. This is pretty easy. It's right in front of you. Don't let this be the reason that all the regulators come in and take this whole sector down because you're really risking it. This is not a small, this is a third or fourth largest um, coin that's out there. And, and I would just be aware of it. And it's very frustrating to sit on the sidelines and watch. And I apologize to the people out there who may have made comments and maybe say this is a bad thing. But whoever it is, you're not speaking loud enough. You're unapologetic in your comments. And I dig them. And as listen, De Niro made a lot of lousy movies. Nicholson made a lot of lousy movies. But that De Niro movie that Meet the Fockers, I mention that because he talks about puffing the magic dragon. And before we get out of here, Danny, Maybe you can talk to us about Puff the Magic Dragon and Charles or Fritz or Chuck Schumer's huge bill that's probably not going to get passed through, but it was big news earlier this week. Circle of trust. I got my eyes on you, Fokker. But uh, yeah, so Schumer came out because he's saying he was going to do this. He knows this bill has no chance of passing. It's a total comprehensive bill that includes prison reform, which is great, and all those things, social justice. But he knows. You know why he's doing it? Because AOC is running against him next year. And he better start doing things that liberals want to hear. And he can say that he tried to bring something to the floor. Let me just say this. States are doing a great job on their own right now, not just enacting laws, but enacting prison reform laws and helping communities that have been penalized from the war on drugs. The states are doing the job here. All the Senate or president needs to do is deschedule the drug from a schedule one to a schedule two, and the rest will fall in line. And I believe you can do that 
with an executive order. Schedule one is scheduled to fall in line. So I'm hopeful something good comes out of this, but this was just an announcement for, you know, just to say that he's doing it. FDA regulating the space, no one wants that. States' rights, everyone wants that, which he says. It's called the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. They're going to piece this thing apart. I have no hope that this will pass. I'm still hopeful that the Safe Banking Act will pass, though. Justice reform. I mean, a huge justice reform issue as well, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, it's all tied together. I mean, you've heard it said many times there's tens of thousands, if not maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are are in jail in this country for laws that are not even on the books anymore about some of these drugs. So they kind of do need to be tied together. And you know what? Like At the end of the day, if Chuck Schumer, the speaker in the Senate or the leader in the Senate is being pushed a little bit to the left in the the ways that make sense from a a social justice perspective for political reasons, then great, right? Maybe we'll get to some better solutions sooner. Let me just say this before we wrap it up. There's nobody that is more, I've talked about this on previous podcasts that I had called Bale Street. I am so for prison reform and justice, and that's been going on, and I I want that to happen. But he threw too much into this bill to make that all happen. And so I hope it does. And and that is one of the most important things about it. And Justice for All happens to be a great movie just for you folks playing our home game. When we come back, the author of The Book Report, our friend Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Advisors. Peter Bookvar is the chief investment officer of Bleakley Advisor Group, an $8 billion wealth management firm. He's also the editor of The Book Report, a market and economic newsletter. Prior to joining Bleakley, Peter was a managing director and the chief market analyst for the Lindsay Group and served as an analyst and portfolio manager for Omega Advisors. He's also a CNBC contributor and our friend. Peter, welcome to On the Tape. Pete, it is absolutely fantastic to have you. Now, Dan, Danny and I were speaking about Jerome Powell interest rates. You have to sort of break this tie to the extent that it is a tie. I submit that the fact that interest rates are going lower does not by definition mean the Fed has this right. I would say anything but. What are your thoughts on this entire backdrop? 10-year yields, which went to 175, down to 125, 141, 135. Everybody says, look, Fed has it right. What say you? So I looked back at what the yield curve reactions were to each round of QE, going back to when they first started it in March 2009. And obviously, the purpose, theoretically, for the Fed to do QE was to suppress long-term interest rates. But as we saw in each of the QEs, the exact opposite happened. When QE was on, the yield curve steepened. When QE was turning off, the yield curve flattened. So it is not a coincidence that the yield curve flattening really started to take hold on the day in mid-June when Powell said they're now discussing tapering and we had more people that want to raise interest rates in 2022 from 2023. That's when the curve really started to steepen. And I think everyone took out that playbook. Now, of course, you can throw in the belief that we're seeing some stagflationary type situations and and housing and autos and, and other parts of the economy that are being bogged down by these supply constraints, and then maybe some concerns with Delta. And then there's also a large constituency of people that believe that this inflation flare-up is short-lived. I think it was Bank America a couple weeks ago that did a survey, and 72% were in the transitory camp. So I think you add that all together, and it helps to explain this flattening. Peter, I look at things on a relative basis. And when I look at rates in Japan and rates in Germany relative to the U.S. tenure, on a relative basis, rates are actually not down. If you want to look at the U.S. tenure, I, I think that's correct. And the second, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. It is a supply and demand issue. Foreigners that are buying our bonds, the bills have shrunk, whatever the infrastructure was going to 
B came down a little bit. Now this new bill that's being presented came down a little bit. Oh, yeah, so there's less funding, although I'd love to hear your thoughts on debt in general. But you just said a word that triggered me because I've talked about it before is stagflation, which is the ultimate worst thing that might occur here. So I know I just threw a lot of things at you, but I'd love to get your thoughts on all those things. The point about stagflation, that implies that at least in the reaction of the bond market is we're going to see this daily tug of war between those that think long rate should rise because there's inflation. And then on the other hand, those that think they should fall because growth is eventually slowing. We reach sort of peak growth. To your other points, and yeah, the Treasury general account falling in dollars, you know, that's probably lending some money into the Treasury market and the spread to overseas bonds are a factor. Now, foreigners maybe are part of this yield grab relative to their own interest rates. But you look at the numbers and they're not whole hog buying U.S. Treasuries. I mean, foreign participation in the U.S. Treasury market has been declining for years. And while maybe we've seen a little bit of a pickup recently because the cost of hedging has gone down and has allowed them to grab that yield profitably, that would be the bottom of my list as reasons for this, uh, the rally in the long end. And we have to also put this in perspective. I mean, the 10-year yield went from 90 basis points to almost 180 in just three months. Pricing in, I believe, the current inflation stats. The five-year went from 35 basis points to almost 95 in no time. So, yeah, we're giving some of that back, but just to put that into perspective. You gave us a little history of QE and what it meant for rates and what it meant for the yield curve. Looking overseas, though, again, past Danny and Europe here, uh, over in China, what did you make of last week's reserve cut? And how does that factor into the way the Fed might be thinking about the pace of the recovery and the pace of continued QE and then obviously coming off ZERP at some point? China is always struggling with the issue of getting funding to small and medium-sized private companies. Obviously, there's been never a problem for state-owned businesses to get access to credit. And I think that with COVID still being an issue in Asia in the sense that the vaccination rates are still very low and there's more of a let's lock it down type mentality over there, I look at the reserve cut, at least for now, maybe as a one-off. Because then on, on one hand, China's trying to delever. Well, it's not really delevering. It's just slowing the pace of, of debt growth relative to GDP. But at the same time, wanting to maintain certain levels of growth. So I don't look at it that much as being the beginning of some sort of easing cycle there. I think how it spills over into what Powell is thinking. There's a difference between what the Fed should do and what they might do. Because Powell has a very institutional frame of thought right now. Yeah, you can look at the data and you can look at the inflation numbers and and you can argue vehemently, like I do, that they're just way off sides here and they're just going crazy with monetary policy that maybe was appropriate a year ago, but has no bearing on the current landscape. But he's also thinking that his term ends in February 2022. Now, he may want to leave. He may want to say, you know what, enough of this. But if he does that, if he thinks that, well, he doesn't want to mess this up going into year end. It's just easier for him to sort of take his time and let the next person deal with this. On the other hand, if he wants the job and wants to continue on, well, he also doesn't want to mess this up. So this is where sort of this institutional bureaucratic government thinking sort of collides with what a central banker should be doing, putting aside any political thoughts. So again, to my point, what they should do and what they might end up doing 
you know, there is an inherent political conflict here. Well, we've been talking movies, and then I'll use my Chaz Palminteri Bronx tale. You said, you know, he's going to leave. Well, I would say now you can't leave because I would submit they shouldn't be allowed to leave. I mean, these guys and gals have put on the biggest prop trade in the history of mankind, and they're going to let somebody else take it off for them. They should be forced to stay to the bitter end, just my view doesn't have to be yours. But here's one for you, Peter, because I'm exercised, as you can tell. A month and a half, two months ago, Stan Druckenmiller, Dan, notice I didn't put the N in front of the K. I said Druckenmiller. He said the U.S. dollar is probably 10, 15 years away from not being a reserve currency anymore. This week on the Halftime Report, Jeff Gunlock, I'm going to quote, want to hear your thoughts. I don't want to be overly dramatic but I think the dollar is doomed. Ultimately, the size of our deficits, both trade deficit, which has exploded post-pandemic, and the budget deficit, which is obviously completely off the charts, suggests that in the intermediate term, I don't really think this year exactly, but in the intermediate term, the dollar is going to fall pretty substantially. I agree. Dan earlier on the show said these MMT guys and gals got it right. I'd say you might think they got it right now, but you ain't seen nothing yet, sucker. If you chart the, the Dixie overlaid against the budget deficit as a percent of GDP and the U.S. trade deficit as a percent of GDP, there is a pretty tight relationship. So that's exactly getting to Jeff's point that as long as those deficits continue to increase, you know, that is a natural depressant on the dollar. Now, when you think about the trade deficit, yeah, that means there's more dollars leaving the U.S. than coming in. And once it leaves the U.S., it's immediately getting transferred to that local currency. I mean, you look at the euro and on paper, there's every reason for the euro to be below a dollar. Negative interest rates, sclerotic growth, governments that can't get their act together, a banking system that has has seen their profits get destroyed by the policies of the ECB. But Europe has a trade surplus with us. So there, there are more euros going there than coming here. So just based on that relationship, yes, you can argue that the dollar over time will continue to weaken, which I don't disagree. Now, there's going to be bouts of of dollar spikes, depending on what's going on with macro. And we'll see what kind of interest rate differential and sort of monetary policy differential we're going to see over the next couple of years, because we are beginning to see other central banks begin the process of, of pulling back a little bit. We saw Bank of Canada yesterday trim their weekly QE. We saw Bank of Korea overnight saying that they're going to probably raise rates in August. We saw a Bank of England member saying that we're possibly going to be ending QE before year end, which is currently scheduled to end. And that the U.S., along with the ECB, will be very late in normalizing. We'll see what that does to the currency. In terms of losing reserve status, I don't think we'll, we'll lose it. I think that we may share it with China, especially if China moves to this digital currency, which will really quicken the pace at which countries will and consumers will end up using the wand. So that's how I see it. It will be two countries standing on that podium rather than just us. Peter, how far away do you think the Fed has gone from its mandate, call it 30 to 40 years ago? I mean, we keep moving the goalpost. I know the mandate changed to what's the stock market doing under Bernanke in you know, 2008, 2009. That's where we are. But hope is not a great strategy. But I agree with you that the risk reward for Powell, whether he wants the job or not, he obviously wants a nice trip to Jackson Hole, which he would get anyway, since his term wouldn't be up until next February. But if he's auditioning right now, I mean, he's this is going to be a political hot button issue going into obviously to next year's midterm elections, right? They'll, all, all Republicans are going to blame 
Powell, who was appointed by a Republican, obviously, and is a Republican because Biden reappointed him. And look what you did. The debt's $34 trillion. It's probably where it's going to be. And this is going to become a political issue. And so politicizing the Fed's obviously where we're going to end up. But what is their current mandate and what is their current strategy? And they're just going to keep moving the goalposts. Well, the Bernanke policy actually stretches well into Greenspan. Uh, and where, where at, right after the 1987 crash, he was, he was cutting rates. Uh, so this is now well embedded. Because we have to remember the, the last two recessions pre-COVID were driven by declines in asset prices. That's not how economic cycles previously had worked, causing expansions and contractions. So, yeah, we've sort of turned us into a very asset price dependent economy. So, therefore, to your question, that is, therefore, the third mandate of, of, of the Fed. Because I've, I've argued, you know, you look at QE. There's no empirical study saying that QE helps economic activity. What QE has proven to do is monetize debts and help to lift asset prices. So because of that, and and maybe, you know, the Fed understands that because Bernanke even wrote about it in his editorial in the Wall Street and the Washington Post years back to say the intent of QE is to lift asset prices, which will in turn lift consumer spending and consumer wealth. That is, I think, their number one mandate. Now, right now, they're running sort of a fingers crossed type monetary policy uh, with this inflation story exceeding their expectations. Central banks like to do things at their own accord and along their own timeline. Now, in a crisis, they're, they're forced by the, the, the circumstances to, to react in one side. But when it comes to taking that away, they like to do things on their own accord. The thing about this whole inflation discussion is it's, it has the potential of mucking up that timeline. And I argue that even if this is short-lived inflation and things sort of normalize next year, the Fed still has to be slowing down their asset purchases because it's just so overwhelming, the financial system, when all we have to do is look at the overnight uh, repo usage uh, on, on a daily basis. Uh, and if it's not short-lived, well, then that will speed up the timeline at which the Fed needs to act. And if they don't abide by that, then we'll have a repeat of the first quarter of this year where the bond market will do it for them. What's happened in Canada and New Zealand since they tightened a little bit? I know one pulled back QE, one kind of stopped QE. I haven't looked at the impact on currency relative to the dollar. I haven't looked at their bond market. What has happened? Did the world end when they did that? Because it's one thing for New Zealand and Canada to do it. and U.S. can still kind of get away with doing what they're doing. If a larger country does it, there's going to be hell to pay. Well, the, the, the Kiwi jumped because it was the surprise. There was no taper in New Zealand. They said, we're done. We're, we're ending it in a couple of weeks. Uh, we also saw a rise in uh, the New Zealand uh, uh, yields across the curve in response. The Bank of Canada move was as expected. So there wasn't really much of a response there. But they seem to be okay. And, you know, the world does go on without this. But I think that there's, at least Powell, there's a part of him that understands that he doesn't want to go into the fall and into the winter and sort of have a repeat of what he presided over in the fourth quarter of 2018, going into year end. But I I think one of the points you made earlier, I I think what what is interesting in terms of the pressure in the midterms next year is it was very interesting to see a lot of the questions the last couple of days in the House and the Congress and, and the Senate in that he was asked a lot of questions about inflation. He was asked a lot about housing. 
and how constituencies are calling more, asking about it. So he is beginning to feel the heat. And again, he may be right on transitory, but that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be beginning this, this, this taper process to start. But you take a step back, it's going to take them a year to taper, even when they start, assuming they do $10 billion a month, even before they get to a conversation about where they should be shifting interest rates. So even if inflation slows down, well, I'll argue we are not slowing down to the one and a half to two percent for years to come. But let's just say it slows down to three to four from eight plus today. Monetary policy is still so far out of line when you have forget about their balance sheet, but still have zero interest rates and have those kinds of levels of inflation. So this story has a lot more chapters to, to go in the next couple of years. So, Peter, you just mentioned the flattening of the 210 spread. Let's just focus on the 10-year for a second here because we were just talking about it earlier. It got down to that 200-day moving average. It had a big bounce. That was like 124 or something like that. It appears that we want to test that again. Do you think there'll be any repercussions across other risk assets if we break that, make new lows, and it starts to feel like the 10-year this summer is going to 1%. What do you think the knock-on effects of that are as it relates to the stock market, as it relates to the dollar, maybe some commodities? Well, from a messaging standpoint, it's clearly going to signal a problem. Not only is is the U.S. finally trying to, to get its legs back, but the rest of the world is as well. The rest of the world, you know, outside of Europe, well, China is now catching up in terms of the vaccines. The rest of the world is only just beginning to open up. Theoretically, the economic growth should only just be accelerating. So if you see that drop in yields on the long end, I think that that portends of broader issues of that maybe we have reached peak growth. But then on the other hand, again, the rest of the world is only just reopening. I do want to go back to obviously a lot of the intense inflation pressures outside of the U.S. are on the producer side. But that implies that on the consumer level side, if companies are having difficulty passing this on, there's major margin squeezes going on in the rest of the world. And what does that mean for growth? And gets back to the whole stagflationary type discussion, not just being a U.S. thing, but potentially a global thing. And valuations aside, you know, with interest rates this low, what do you think it means for stocks right here, right? So we're, we're on a week where at one point the S&P 500 was up 17% on the year. We know that forward multiples are expensive. If we're starting to price in, or at least if yields are starting to price in kind of peak growth, what does it mean for stocks here? Because it feels like there has been, I think that the greatest peak to trough decline we've seen in 2021 is like, you know, a little less than 6%. It seems like stocks would be really ripe for a correction. Well, I think if this speculationary situation does gain some traction, I would argue that that's a PE multiple killer. And you get a combination of sticky inflation because what that does also is it handcuffs the Fed. What does the Fed respond to? Do they respond to slower growth and do nothing and just let inflation do what it's doing on the upside? Or do they try to crack down inflation and then further threaten growth? It's not a good situation. And, and to my point, you would have to believe that it's a peak multiple contraction. I mean, I went into this year saying, in trying to figure out where the markets will be at year end, and I hate the year end price targets, I said, it's going to be very easy going to this year to say, okay, the economy is going to get better. Earnings are going to improve because the vaccine is here. That's an easy call. What was always the tough call was, what multiple should I put on that improvement? Well, what multiple should you put on a stagflationary type situation? And I'll argue it's not going to be 22, 23 earnings, 
22 to 23 times earnings, it's going to be in the teens. Now, where in the teens, I don't know, but that's one of the things that I worry about. Where does gold now fit in? What's its role now in, you know, within the investment world? Secondly, when will our debt matter, if ever? You know, I know rates are low, so people think that we can finance it. But to your point, you're kind of running out of ammunition here. Well, I'll start with the debt side. I think the debt side has begun to matter, and it's being reflected in the dollar. You know, we look at the Dixie, of course, which is almost half the euro. So it, it is not necessarily totally reflective of a, of, a, of a broad dollar move. But being lower 90s, as opposed to 100 plus, I think the debts and deficits is already being reflected on a pretty muted dollar. Uh, again, I go back to why is the euro trading so well? Well, it's not because the euro has these great characteristics in terms of the economy, certainly not interest rate differentials, but it's because they have a trade surplus. And that is, is something that, that we don't really have with anybody. We're the biggest debtor nation in the world. So I think these debts and deficits is already being reflected in the dollar. Now, just there so far, but that weaker dollar on top of all the inflationary pressures around the world reflected in import prices, which are now running in an annualized pace in the double digits. In terms of gold and silver, I try to look at gold and silver, and I've been following gold and silver for decades, and I'm currently very long gold and silver for myself and clients, that it's a currency, so it's going to trade off fiat currencies, in particular the dollar, and it's going to trade off the level of real interest rates. And last year, going into August, we had a spike. Obviously, gold got above 2000 Silver went to the highest level in years. And that's when, after that move, real rates stopped going down. The dollar stopped going down. And what we've seen since is this consolidation. But because I believe that inflation is going to remain sticky, and because I believe that the Fed will be very slow in responding to that, in addition to the stagflationary situation, I do expect another leg lower in real rates with still that secular headwind to the dollar. So I think silver and gold have essentially been consolidating that last August move and is now regenerating itself, recharging itself for another leg higher. All right. So Peter, you're the CIO of Bleakly Advisors. You guys manage portfolios, I assume, for a lot of high net worth individuals. You just talked about your view about gold and silver. Are you getting a lot of questions about Bitcoin? Is it really solve any of the purposes that you guys would recommend or allocate towards gold or silver? And has the price decline over the last three to four months caused more interest or less? Not surprising to the three of you who've been in markets for decades. We got a lot of calls on Bitcoin a couple of years ago when it went from 2000 to 20. So at around 18 to 20, we got a lot of calls. And then the calls stopped coming when we broke below 10. And fast forward, most of the calls on Bitcoin came when it went north of 50,000 into 60,000. And I haven't been in, asked a Bitcoin question in months now that it's broken down to the 30,000 level. So it just shows that you know it's still just retail chasing price. We know sentiment follows price. Now, in terms of using it in a broader portfolio, I mean, obviously, a lot of the custodians are now allowing you to trade it. And now that we're beginning to see other options of people trading the crypto world without having to bet on the price of Bitcoin, they can sort of invest in the, the infrastructure of crypto, whether it's Coinbase or others. So that's what we're telling people is why bother? Who cares where the price of Bitcoin goes? It's irrelevant to where this whole crypto space evolves. And I say, I don't know whether Bitcoin's worth 30,000, 30 bucks or 3 million, 
you know, again, it's not going to have any bearing over the, you know, this evolution of where crypto is going, generally speaking. Before we get out of here, and I know Dan Nathan is dying to ask you about your love of the Grateful Dead, which, by the way, does not even make my top 100 bands of all time. I have 700 songs on a Spotify playlist, and not one is a Grateful Dead song. Just putting Dan, it Dan, out we there. Take them to City Field with us in August. Z- yeah, I know. Zero shot of that happening. I can guarantee you. The Shea Stadium, City, whatever. But I'm going to ask you. This is a. I'm asking you this as a yes or no question. This begs for a large response, but this is sort of a tee-up for the next time you're with us. In September, I think it was the 17th, 2019, the repo market blew up. I mean, it's only one word to describe it. It blew up. The Fed stepped in, and they're never able to extricate themselves. I would submit that that was the precursor of this huge equity sell-off. People will say, ah, it was COVID. COVID was the match. Why do I bring that up? Because you mentioned something about seven minutes ago about the reverse repo market. Well, guess what? Something wacky happened a couple of weeks ago. The Fed raised their rates by five basis points, and they got inundated with people looking to lend them money. In my world, by definition, it's the same thing, opposite but the same. There's something going on in the mechanism that doesn't make sense. I think people are not focused enough about that. Am I right or am I wrong? Peter Bookvar. So it definitely reflects a system that's broken pre Great financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet was $800 billion, And all it took was the Fed's balance sheet to contract from around four closer to three to cause that problem in the repo market. But that problem in 2019 was also regulatory driven. JP Morgan, for example, had their hands tied in their ability to fill the hole. So I do blame the regulatory side also in breaking that. I also blame the regulatory side in March 2020 when the treasury market broke because there were no dealers that were stepping up to make markets. But I do think that, yes, this is a game of whack-a-mole with the Fed, that what they're doing eventually causes a problem somewhere. But that problem to me is more of a symptom of a greater disease. The current situation with the reverse repo market, it's showing that something is broken, that here the Fed is doing QE. So they're taking in securities and then basically lending them right back out via that repo market. I mean, it's a strange situation. But in terms of causing a broader problem, I think because the Fed is sort of playing both sides of the game is that I don't see yet a problem spilling over. I think it's just more a reflective of of monetary overload that that they've created uh, and again, combined with the regulatory structure that has resulted in this. So I try to figure out whether this is going to be a broader problem, but I can't point the finger at it yet and in, in how I look at it. Yeah, fair. But as I said, nor can I, nor will I be at a Grateful Dead. I mean, what is it like Bob Weir? Who's left? Does it even freaking matter? I mean, it doesn't matter. It's everybody like- stoned. I mean, I could be singing up there and it wouldn't make a damn difference for you people because you wouldn't be able to hear it, see it or, or smell it anyway. I mean, you're kind of out boomering yourself right here, if you will. But I will say, you know, Peter Bookfar is one of the guys that guy you and I have gotten to meet over the years through our relationship with CNBC and doing shows together. And he's obviously um, a brilliant market mind, but it's been a lot of fun, me bumping into him. And usually it's it's you and your son, Peter, at some of those Dead & Co. shows. And, and that is a, an amazing tradition that your teenage son, who I think is now in college, right, um, became yeah. a Dead fan because of you, bud. I'm bringing him back to City Field, and he goes to school in Boston. And in September, he's going to 
fly from Boston and meet me in Chicago to see a couple of shows at Wrigley Field. That's pretty cool, man. Well, listen, Peter, thank you very much. I know Danny loves your work, and we're really excited to have you on the tape here with us. We hope that you'll come back here, man. Check out the book report. I know Guy, in his very nice intro of Peter, highlighted it. It's uh, it's kind of a must-read. If you're interested in macro and, and things getting broken down every single day, it's, it's one of my first reads every morning. So, Peter, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. So appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.